Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 212 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is a design and strategy-oriented advisor, speaker, writer, and the founder of Puppet, a company helping to define the future of software. He has a number of interests, including software productivity, business strategy, and the inclusion of more people in the software revolution. So welcome to the podcast, Luke Canise. Thank you for having me. So Luke, could you perhaps give us a little bit more insight into your background, um, Puppet, and, and also what you're up to now? I'll start a little further back from Puppet. So I graduated with a chemistry degree planning to go on to become a scientist, but the school I went to, Reed College here in Portland, does a really good job of explaining to you what the life of a scientist is like. And they did sufficiently well that I concluded I did not want that life. And so I decided to to look for something else. And, and I bounced around to a lot of different technology jobs over the years. I had seven jobs in two and a half years and got fired from most of them, but eventually landed in a in a job where I thrived and I did well enough that I didn't get fired and also enjoyed the work well enough that I wanted to continue investing in it. And, and that was being a system administrator. And it, it's kind of a weird thing where on the one hand, I really enjoyed the work and on the other hand, I found it really tedious and boring. And that's because most of the work of an admin is really tedious and boring. And so I started writing small tools to help me get better at it. And at a certain point, I looked up and I said, clearly, I can't be the only person in the world who has this problem, who's trying to solve problems in this way. And so I sought a community, found one in the, the Lisa conference and began arguing with people, um, not just on the internet, but also in person about how to build and use automation. And at some point I looked up, I, I did a poll in the room and I said, how many people in this room have built their own automation tool? And nearly every hand went up. And then I said, well, okay, other than the people in your organization, how many people's tools are being used by somebody outside their organization? And one hand stayed up. And I was like, all right, so this, there's clearly something else going on here. So I said, what would it take to build a product that I could use or that my colleagues could use, but that really everyone could use. And that led, eventually, it took a couple of years for it to happen, but that led to me starting Puppet and saying, I think there's a need for a widely usable product that is the right combination of sufficiently powerful that it can solve most problems, but sufficiently easy to use that can be, by, be used by most people. And that led to Puppet. I bootstrapped that for four and a half years. Not really, you know, it was 2005 when I started and it's fair to say I, I had, there were some parts of what I was doing that I had a real plan around, but a lot of what I was doing, I was kind of like, well, I'll try this thing and we'll see how it goes. So it was very much spur, not spur of the moment, but like responding to the, to, to what I experienced. Um, but after four and a half years, it was clear we had a real business. It was clear that there was real demand, that we were having some success. Um, and it was also clear that I needed help. And so when somebody tracked me down at an event and offered to invest in the company, I eventually said yes. And from there, we grew from three people to 500 people over the next eight years, uh, maybe seven years, and then also, you know, ended up raising $87 million. I mean, that's a story in itself and probably one that you probably could write a book on, I'm sure, through your experiences of what have, what's happened. There's so much information out there for founders now, and that's both a, a blessing and a curse because there's a bunch of problems. And one is very few successes look very much like each other. And the second is that very few people know what are the important parts of their success and what are the irrelevant parts of their success, right? You see people saying, 
you know, a, a great example is how much does it matter whether you went to a great school? And there are people who believe going to great schools are uh, is a really important part of setting you up for lifetime success. But there's a huge number of people who have succeeded without going to great school, which tells you like, okay, it's, it might help, but mostly it, you know, it helps because you have a great network of rich people who also went to a great school as opposed to you got a better education in some way. So not unlike great schools, you look at founders and you listen to their personal stories and it's really, really hard for them to know what parts of their personal story were really important to success and what parts of their personal story were just a pointed part of their lived experience, but not actually that useful or valuable for the people to know about. Exactly. I think every entrepreneur has their own story and their own way of coming into a business as well. So yeah, it's interesting to hear. But as you say, I think your story is, is unique to you. Yeah. I, for instance, I, I can't recommend to other people live on a commune for the first eight years of their, of their lives. It, it's too late for most of us. Yes. Um, and honestly, the transition from living on a commune in the woods in Tennessee to going to public school in Nashville in the 80s, that transition was sufficiently miserable. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But it, it's certainly a huge part of why I'm able to question the received wisdom and and not not worry about whether I'm doing something that is that everyone else agrees is insane. And what are you up to now? Obviously, I understand you're no longer with Puppet. Yeah, so I stepped down slash was retired uh, about three years ago. It was a relatively complicated transition, but um, since then, I, you know, I, I think every founder, you know, for one, I had three months where I was basically useless because I was so burned out by the time I left that it, it was it was multiple months before I could really even conceive of sitting down and doing anything that resembled work. Once I started lifting my head and thinking about what to do next, I started doing a lot of writing. So I've got uh, quite a few articles at lukekinese.com where I've, I've tried to write things that, that I seem to believe that, that most other people seem to disagree with. Um, and some of it is stuff other people think about. Like uh, one of my favorites is, no, you don't learn more from failure than success. I just had an argument on the internet about this with somebody recently. But there's a lot of other stuff too that I think um, you know, it's like me exploring territory. So trying to understand, you know, I have beliefs about the blockchain. The market has beliefs about the blockchain. So I wrote a series of articles that kind of tried to point out differences between what I believe in what the market seems to believe. Or I have beliefs about venture capital. The market has beliefs about venture capital. Wrote a series of articles trying to explain what I had learned about venture capital as a founder. And especially what I learned about what motivates the VCs themselves, like how they operate versus how to think about it from a founder perspective. And part of that was trying to think like, should I try to go into venture capital? Should I try to become a VC? Should I start another software company? And I spent a number of years exploring pretty deeply into that space. And, and what I concluded was a few things. The first is I don't really love being on board on boards. I don't really, I really enjoy the operator side. I really enjoy having direct responsibility and having agency and a good advisor and a good board member you shouldn't even really have very strong opinions. You know, when I give advice to founders, I strive to not actually give advice. I strive to listen really, really well to what they're saying and reflect back to them what they said in a way that hopefully helps them more clearly see the world they're living in without actually telling them, and here's what you should do about it. And that's really hard. And I think it's valuable and I've become better at it than I was two years ago or five years ago, but it's not something I want to spend all of my time doing. And I've also concluded like, the things that make great VCs, I don't think I have most of those things. I'm not somebody who's going to be fantastic at deal flow, who people are just knocking down the door to come talk to me. I'm not a super personable person. I don't have a huge network. I don't have any of the natural assets that would make me easy to find. Where I really stand out is I've got a couple of weird beliefs that no one else seems to share, or maybe very few people seem to share. 
and I have a particular affection for tools. So I spent the last year or so ruminating on questions like, so when I transitioned, when I was a, when I was a developer, the tools that I relied on on a daily basis were incredibly powerful. You look at whether I'm looking at using Vim or I'm using Ruby or I'm using you know any uh, compile chains or packaging tools. These are all incredibly powerful tools. And no one's surprised when you sit down at a developer's desk, no one's surprised that the tools that they rely on on a daily basis are hard to learn, they're hard to use, they're complicated, but they're really, really powerful, right? And no one says, you know, we should really make a simpler version of that. There should be an MS Paint version of, of Ruby or there should be an MS Paint version of the Microsoft IDE, right? No one says that. But as a developer, once I switched to being a, a, a CEO, to being a manager, to being a leader, suddenly all my tools are like the MS Paint version of those tools, right? There's no depth to any of them. None of them are products that I can invest my whole career in. So I began looking at other careers and saying, other, other jobs, other work areas and saying, where is the problem as complicated as the problem of writing code or as the problem of building products? But the solutions look much more like, you know, Microsoft Paint than they look like Adobe Photoshop. And, and that's really become my obsession is trying to understand who deserves better tools but doesn't get them and why do they not get them, right? What is broken about our market today that we really, really believe developers and sysadmins and designers deserve really, really powerful, complex tools and they're capable of doing it and they're willing to do it. But for example, CEOs absolutely aren't capable of using powerful tools or accountants aren't capable of using powerful tools or lawyers aren't capable of using powerful tools or more importantly, hotel workers or fast food workers, right? These are, this is where the majority of our talent in this country is, is in these low wage jobs that we don't give powerful tools to. We don't give something that they can invest a career in. And why is that? You know, and, then, and that's been a, a, the, the most interesting pursuit for me over the last couple of years. I'm sure we're going to come back to that later on. But Luke, can you share with us a career tip, um, one that the audience may not know and perhaps should? For me, I would say getting fired is incredibly valuable. I wrote an article. Uh, maybe I didn't publish this article. I wrote an article about fear. I got fired a lot. I'm, I'm a really fireable person. I think most people go through their careers working hard not to get fired. And once I concluded that I couldn't really avoid being fired, it freed me in a way to be much more authentic and honest about what I really cared about and what I wanted. And that allowed me to make better decisions. It allowed me to take bigger risks. And when the risks didn't pay off, honestly, I was probably going to get fired anyway. So I'm not that fussed about it. And if they do pay off, then they pay off really, really well. So I'd say just in general, in your career, you have to find places where you can take real risks and the consequences of those risks. Now, I don't mean take risks that like I'm going to accidentally destroy the business or I'm going to accidentally, you know, result in someone being injured, but take risks with your career, right? Um, because in most cases, so like when I started Puppet, I worked hard to avoid starting Puppet. I, I, I looked at every other option available. I was, I was living in Nashville again at the time because my wife was getting her PhD. We couldn't move. And I, there weren't really any good jobs in Nashville for people in the role that I had, uh, for being people in you know, high-level sysadmin roles. And so I looked at, you know, I, I spent six months at another company um, commuting back and forth between Nashville and Boston. I looked at going to school. I like the idea of a law degree. I like the training I would get from it. Um, I'm, ra I'm raising two little litigators at my house right now. <laughs> um, but it turns out law school is so expensive that you have to become a lawyer afterwards. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just wanted the, the training you get from law school. So I looked at it and I said, you know, I could probably, I'll probably learn more failing to start a software company than I will successfully getting an MBA. And 
that was a huge part of like, you know what? Even if I fail, I'll probably get a lot out of it. And so I was willing to take that big risk. And of course, I didn't set out thinking I probably will fail. I believed that I was going to succeed. I believed in what I was doing, but I recognized that I was taking a sizable risk. So that's a good example. So I'd say like within your career in general, allocate some of your career to risk, right? If you were a financial manager and you're in your 20s or your 30s, you don't put all your money in bonds. In fact, I probably wouldn't put any of your money in bonds, depending on the market situation. Put most of your money in high risk, high growth things. As you get later in your career, probably you don't take as many risks, but you also know way more about yourself and the world and you've got a better understanding of your assets. So the need to take risks is lower. Luke, can you share with us your worst career moments and what you learned from that experience? Hiring people is always the hardest. My transition out of Puppet was was probably the worst career moment, but that's still sufficiently close and sufficiently volatile that I, I probably can't share too much about that. Okay. At Puppet, I hired my best friend and my college roommate, and I don't have good relationships with either one of them anymore. So I'd say like the challenge of a growth company is that the right way to do business is to focus on the business, but the problem is lots of other things. You, you get lots of collateral damage. And so I'd say all the collateral damage from running a growth company is the worst thing. And, and most of it comes to the people that I hired and then not so much that I chewed up, but that like our relationship and the need to double the company every year chewed up. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a just a, not quite a trail of destruction, but there's, there's a lot of, of injury in the, the trail of that, of that business as a result. That's probably the hardest thing to look back. And, you know, I was looking through my contacts recently and just realizing like how many great people I've worked with over the years and like, you know, complicated relationships with all of them because you come in with all this optimism. And then when they finally leave, it's, you never leave a company on great terms or not never, but it's, it's wicked hard too. It is. Yeah. Is there anything you particularly learned that you would do differently from from your time at um, Puppets? There are a lot of things I would do differently, but I can't honestly say that those things would make us better off or worse off, right? It's easy to tell yourself, you know, wow, I can look back and I can really clearly understand the mistakes that I've made. And I would do those differently today. And I know now how to make them better. But the reality is you probably don't really know, right? So much of what happened to us is timing, is context, things that are outside of our control. And if we change those things, right, there are a number of things that that I wish, I wish this or I wish that. But there's a real chance that if I, if those things had been different, we wouldn't have had anywhere near the success we've had, right? Not because I think that, but just because it takes a lot of gall for me to claim that I know what caused us. This, the, the person who made these mistakes in the first place somehow is in a position to say, I know how to do them better next time. I'm really hesitant to say what I would do differently or that I believe having another chance I would do better. I'd like to think that I would. That being said, I think I'd probably would have raised less money at Puppet if I were to do it again. Um, I'm starting a, I'm four months into my new company and I'm trying to figure out how I find the right balance between having enough velocity that I'm I'm making real progress, but also having enough control and not not finding myself on the VC treadmill where I have to go raise money every 12 months in order to keep eating. Yes. So that's that's one thing I would do differently. Um, you know, Honestly, I would not have tried to build an executive team in Portland. I think it turns out that it's nearly impossible to get a, an experienced executive to move. And I wasted a lot of energy trying to make that to happen. And I think that just admitting that they were all in the Bay Area and I should hire them there or I should be willing to hire them anywhere they are, you know, that was a better move. Uh, and that probably would have made a, a big difference to us. You know, those are some examples. We got unlucky. We introduced a bunch of incompatibilities in Puppet in the language because the language I invented was limited. It had a, it had a bunch of internal conflicts. And so we had somebody who was much better at languages fix all those at some point. But the timing of those fixes and the incompatibilities they introduced were 
kind of perfectly aligned with a competitor showing up and doing really well in the market. And, you know, that timing was really, really poor. So I, I would I would do that differently. So Luke, can you share with us maybe your career highlight or great success? I could be so lucky as to look back in 20 years and say that's not my greatest success, right? Because it, it, it is, we built a good product. To me, more importantly, the thing that makes me happiest is when I run into somebody who knows that I made Puppet and they say, thank you, you made my career better. You saved my job. I was able to enjoy my job again. I was going to leave this career. I was going to abandon 10, 15 years of experience. And you made my job so much more enjoyable. You got me a raise. I get paid well now. And when I get home in the evenings and on weekends, I don't get interrupted. I don't get paged anymore. I'm more present with my family, with my partner, and I have a better time. So to me, that's that's success at Puppet. And the reason why I'm proud that we scaled the company isn't because of how big the company is or how much money anybody made. It's because we scaled that happiness, right? We were able to reach that many more people with this product, with this change in expectations. And if you look at the life of an admin when I started Puppet, now I'm not going to say that all the changes between now and then are because of Puppet, but you know we were the ones who first kicked that ball rolling. And the world is really, really different from that for an admin today. And I'm, I'm really proud to have had some part in making what used to be a really tactical, miserable job. And the admins, they were never they were never given a seat at the table. They weren't considered part of the team. But you look at DevOps today, you look at how people talk about product teams today, and there's gotta be an operator there now, right? There's gotta be somebody in, whether they call them an SRE or a DevOps person or a, you know, any number of other things, they get a seat at the table today, and they didn't used to. And, and I'm, I'm proud to have had some part of that. And Luke, what excites you about the future of the industry and careers in IT? There's so much. I mean, obviously, it's 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 complicated right now because it's hard to think much about the future without thinking about the climate scientists claim that we've got 11 years left to make any sort of substantive recovery and computers aren't exactly helping us recover the climate these days. But the thing that I'm most excited about right now is there has been a collection of trends over the last 10 to 15 years. And I think those trends have mostly played out. I think that we're nearly done with those trends and I'm excited about what's going to come in this space to replace them. And I'd say those trends are things like, first and foremost would be the surveillance capitalism, the, the the practices of Google and Facebook, where everyone just accepts that they know everything about everybody, that they have their hooks into absolutely everything. So I'd say like that trend is, it's going to end, or at least it's going to diminish in popularity. Certainly the product I'm building is, is built with the assumption that nobody accepts that anymore, but a lot of products are being built with that assumption today. Um, and I'm excited about the thing that fills that space. Um, I'm also excited about not blockchain, but decentralization in general. There's a whole uh, re-decentralize the web movement that I think is really, really young and nascent, but there are a lot of great concepts in there. And, I, and I'm excited to see what the world looks like when we build our protocols well, when we stop assuming that every single thing is some gigantic Silicon Valley company aggregates all the data, and then we ask their permission to touch it. And instead we say, what does the world look like where it's my data? What does the world look like where you have to ask me permission for my information as opposed to the other way around. And more importantly, what does the world look like when we really focus on connecting people rather than, you know, Facebook doesn't connect people. Facebook is an intermediary and they have all the control. They have all the power. What does the world look like where we give the power to the people? We give the power to the individuals and allow them to make their, their decisions. I'm not saying I have an answer, but I am saying I'm excited about the exploration that comes when we see saying it makes sense to give a big central player, all the power, all the data, all the access. I, I think we're seeing the end, the end of that trend. And then probably the, the one that I'm most excited about is since the, the smartphone came out and since the advent of the cloud, 
we can build products for everyone. We can build, you know, you can have 2 billion users. So why would you ever build a product without 2 billion users? But the reality is the vast majority of the problems that all of us experience have a much smaller potential user base. I'm building a professional relationship management product and at its most successful, it's going to be used by very few people relative to you know Facebook or Google or something like that. And I'm excited about that because I think we need to be building products for the kind of the combination of really complicated, specialized use cases rather than, you know, again, Facebook can be used by everybody, but not to do anything terribly powerful. If you're a, if you're a carpenter, if you're a roofer, if you are an architect, I'm not going to go to you and say, you know, look, I know you're an architect, but I'm going to build software that anybody can use for architecture, right? Why would I want that? I'm a professional architect. I only want software that can other professional arch- architects can use, right? You wouldn't go to a designer and say, look, I'm going to take away your Photoshop. I'm going to take away your Illustrator and replace it with Illustrator for dummies, right? We deserve specialized tools. And I think this era of reversion to the mean, this era of the simplest thing is the right answer. I think we're slowly wandering away from that. And again, I don't, I don't think we know what's going to fill that space, but I'm really excited to find out. Yeah, that should be interesting. I think you know, obviously you cited a couple of good examples, um, but yeah, I wonder if there are certain gaps out there within, you know, architecture is a good example. There, there must be things out there that don't exist, and there's a void, and something can be produced or developed and created and to fill that need. I think once you start looking at industries, if, if you look at industries through the lens of, is there a specialized software industry targeting that user with their particular problems that helps to shift their work from the tedious, menial, low value work into the highest value analytical work? And you ask like, how many industries like that exist today? The answer is like three, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you're a developer, if you're a designer and in a couple of other areas, but they're very, very few. And so to me, I would say there are no, almost no examples of industries where we do that well. And so the, the market is completely wide open. And, and so I'm, somebody else called this like vertical SaaS, but I, I'd say like, you know, specialized niches that are targeted at groups of users that are all, are all like each other, but are really unlike everybody else. I think there's tons and tons of those. Okay, we're going to go into the reveal round now. We're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think. Are you ready for this? Yeah. So what first attracted you to a career in IT? Uh, they were the first ones to pay me. I applied to everything. I uh, got fired from my cabinet shop. I got fired from uh, day labor doing construction work. I grew up building houses with my dad. So both of those jobs were things I had experience in. And I did a QA job and I got fired from that. And I did visual basic programming and I got fired from that. And then I did Mac administration and I did not get fired from that. (laughs) And then I became a Unix support engineer and did not get fired from that. Became an admin, a sysadmin for that same company and did not get fired from that. So like over time, and I think the getting fired was some combination of building cabinets is uh, stultifyingly boring work for me. It's not work that I find enjoyable. Um, Doing day labor construction is not work I find enjoyable. So I got fired in no small part because... I did not love the work and they could tell. And so I think I I found the work of maintaining large infrastructure interesting enough that I was willing to invest in it. And I'm sure I was a pretty big liability back then. From a social perspective, I was was not housebroken, not literally, but in in a figurative way, I was not an easy teammate. But I focused on getting good enough to be worth keeping around, um, to be worth the compromises, essentially. And so it's some combination of the puzzles were more interesting. Um, it better fit how I how I think about 
what's valuable. And they were that industry was a bit more tolerant of somebody who didn't fit in very well. One of the things I find weird about IT is that developers especially think of themselves as rebels. They really think like we are, you know, flag waving rebels. But if you look at like, so I grew up on a hippie farm. I grew up as part of and studying countercultural movements. And developers are like really toast, and they're a lot like other people. They're like not at all rebellious socially in most cases. And so I find it weird how much there's this theory of how rebellious and different developers are and how the reality is like not at all the case. I don't know. I find it interesting. And what is the best career advice you've ever received? I don't remember things very well. Probably the one that stands out right now is somebody saying, I, I reserve the right to wake up smarter tomorrow, right? So so have an answer today, but then don't get too attached to your answer, right? Because if you wake up tomorrow with new information or you you got new information, you, you got smarter over time, like change it later. <laughs> yes. And so, well, the opposite of that, what is the worst career advice you've ever received? I, I had two people early on in Puppet tell me there was no chance I could succeed. Both these people were running open source software companies and they, they basically told me it's impossible to succeed as open source software company. I mean, obviously I'm going to do it, but you're not. Of course, both those companies failed and Puppet went on to do relatively okay. So it made me relatively immune, not totally immune, but relatively immune to people telling me, especially people who don't really listen to what I'm saying, they don't really hear what I'm trying to say, telling me that I, I can't possibly succeed. Yeah. So... You know, it made me much more willing to say, like, if I believe, that's probably enough for a little while. Obviously, at some point, somebody else has to believe. But for a little while, your own belief is sufficient. And if you were to begin your career again in today's world, what would you do? I would look at what everyone else says you should do and find something that in the white space. I can't truck with following the crowd. Like I said, I'm building this new product and, and it kind of frightens me because everyone agrees it's a good idea. And that tells me that either it's I'm, I'm late to market and to some extent I am because I can point, name like six or eight other products that are being built right now to do the same thing. Yeah. I think in reality, this problem is much harder than it looks like. But in general, I, I don't like to do things that everyone thinks are a good idea because I don't like competition. I don't like to have to fight through the noise. It's more interesting for me. And obviously, this isn't the case for everybody else, right? Other people have different mentalities, different perspectives. But for me, I don't like being part of the crowd. I naturally find my way to the edges. There's a set of things we all agree we know, and I get to the edge of that and begin trying to explore the things we don't quite know yet. So to some extent, I'm a natural, you know, explorer and experimenter. And and so I would avoid the, you know, YC and I would avoid the accelerators and I would avoid the coding schools and stuff like that because it would work well for me, right? I'm, I'm great at learning from books. I'm great at learning on my own. That's really what I'm, what I would always focus on and, and be interested in. So, you know, I would just find the white space. And I think there's there's plenty of white space. Yes, there is. Yes. Um, this is partly returning to what we were discussing earlier, but what are your current career objectives? I'd say a lot like they were at Puppet, where I'd like to be able to look back in five years and say, those people, I made their lives a little bit better. And for me, you know, better is could mean a lot of different things. But mostly what I'm trying to do is I'm an automation person and I'm a tools person. I want to build tools that help shift your work from tedious, menial, unrewarding work that you get paid poorly for to more enjoyable, more challenging, more fulfilling work that you get paid better for. And what I'd love to be able to do, my minimum is I'd like to be able to take the product I'm doing and be able to look back in five years and say, I did that with that product. What I'd really love to be able to do is to say, I did that with three products or five products, some of which I built myself, some of which I helped somebody else build. And my, my ultimate dream, my 10-year dream, is to be able to say that I built a machine for building those products. 
what I tried to do over the last couple of years is build a studio where I tried to start one to two companies a year. And all those companies would fit that model of like, let's go find a market that should have software tools, but doesn't and help design tools for that market. I concluded it was going to be too hard to raise money in that space. Um, and so I decided to build one of the products that that studio would have built. But I'd love to be able to say in 10 years, like I've got a practice and a discipline and a pattern for creating tools that help people's work, lo- work life shift like that. And that all the companies and products I built, I build, I build result in its users getting paid more, enjoying their jobs more and having a better life as a result. To me, that's the dream. Okay. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far? I still think writing is a superpower. The big thing, when I left Puppet, I wasn't a CEO anymore. I wasn't going to become a programmer again for multiple reasons. And the biggest reason is the problems that I was trying to figure out can't really be expressed in code. And so I, I took on, like, how do I use writing as a means of working through my problems and ideas rather than just using code? And I think, you know, the ability to express what you believe in writing is incredibly powerful and incredibly important. And even though, you know, there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, kids these days, they don't write, they don't read. But if you look word by word for word, kids these days are doing more reading and writing than, than anybody ever has, right? You look at, oh, well, they, they don't ever read anymore. They just exchange 100,000 text, text messages a day. I don't know how you think they do that other than by writing and reading. <laughs> so, so I'd say yes. like long form writing, long form reading is, is still a superpower. And what do you do to keep your own career energized? This is something I was I was bad at at Puppet. I let myself really focus on being not just a CEO, but being the CEO of Puppet. And I regret how monogamous my my life became. Um, and part of it was I had young kids. So when we got our first round of investment at Puppet, I had 10-month-old twins. And the time of most extreme growth at Puppet was also the time where my kids were the most challenging and growing the, the fastest and life every day at home was changing. So that was incredibly hard. And so in some ways I made a reasonable compromise between like focus on family and puppet and that's all I have. But at, at the same time, what I'm particularly skilled at is being an experienced dilettante in like 50 different areas. And at puppet, I, I ceased being able to do that because I was so focused on that. What I'm trying to do is to think about like, how do I, how do I continue pushing forward three or four parts of my career at once, as opposed to just, just becoming a great CEO or just becoming good at DevOps. You know, I'm never going to build a company in DevOps again, because everyone agrees DevOps is a good idea. So I'm only willing to build products and spaces where most people agree it's a bad idea. So how do I both do that, but not become maniacally focused on that such that I'm also keeping my eyes open on other opportunities. So that's where I'm doing a lot of startup advice. And that helps me keep my head up and think about other spaces and other problems too. And what do you do in your spare time away from technology? I spend a lot of time with the family. Obviously, I've I've been lucky enough and privileged enough to spend over the last three summers, 16 weeks traveling with my family out of a converted Sprinter van. So I've done a lot of that. I do as much cycling as I can. I'm a, I've been a bike commuter since I was 15. Um, a big part of why I live in Portland is because it's one of the few cities where, depending on circumstances, you have a credible chance of being a bike commuter rather than a car commuter as long as you live close enough to town and you're comfortable you know, with the risk of being hit by a car every day. I do love mountain biking. I, I love my electric cargo bike. Um, and, uh, I do a decent amount of photography when I travel, especially like outdoors. I do a lot of landscape. Um, really enjoy that. It's kind of where my, my gadget addiction has taken hold. I play a decent amount of video games. I have put far more hours into dead cells than I would ever admit out loud. Dead cells <laughs> is like a Metroidvania platform game on, 
It's on other platforms too, but I play it on the Switch. Yeah. Um, that's been a ton of fun. And I do it mostly reading, but I, the reading I do is mostly for work, not for fun. And Luke, can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT career energizer audience? Find your own convictions. That's probably the, the best thing I can say is if you do not have convictions, then find places where you might and study those places and study them long enough that you acquire convictions that are not widely shared, right? Because having convictions that everyone else shares, not that useful. Like if you're convinced gravity exists and everyone else agrees with you, like that's not terribly useful, but find places where you seem to have opinions that aren't widely shared and really study them. You have to study them with the willingness to be wrong, right? They have to really be defensible convictions. And that doesn't mean you're good at defending them. That means that they really are high quality and, and you really are convinced because no one has a better argument than the one you have. And again, not in a debate style argument, but in a really like, no, I really thought deeply about this and, and I, I really am convinced. Yep. And then build your decision-making around the convictions, the, the convictions that you have that no one else has that you're most interested in and or you think have the most long-term potential. Um, and so I'd say like, it all starts with develop your own convictions and specifically, and by that, what I mean is they have to be real convictions, but they have to be convictions that, that you got on your own that aren't widely shared. And finally, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? I'm on the Twitters at L Knies, and I'm also on uh, my writing is all at LukeKnies.com. I've not done as much writing since I started my new company, but those are the two best ways to find me. Great. Luke, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. And thank you very, very much for having me, Phil. As always, my thanks go to my guest on today's show. You'll find a show notes page for today's episode on the IT Career Energizer website, which will be itcareerenergizer.com slash e, and then the number of today's episode. I also want to thank you for your continued support. It's always great to hear from listeners, particularly when they have suggestions about potential guests or ways to improve the show. And this was one of the reasons for creating the new IT Career Energizer Community Facebook group. I'm really excited about taking the podcast forward and I hope that you'll continue to support and listen to the show as it continues to change and evolve. Thanks for listening and remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.